0: Forte. First issue. Total duration 1 hour and 53 minutes. Cover. Calculations. Whether the hand is off or not, the blood runs on the bathtub. Smells red, warm, sticky blood in rust under the doors, dries between all cracklings. The view. Blooming summer sky, spreading velvet thin legs on urban edges. Sentiments. Not a single mile occur by passion's will. Some continue life. Heavy winds. Look after me.
1: Dear you that you listen,
2: The editors of Forte welcome you to its inaugural issue.
1: In this issue and subsequent ones, the authors surround the subject matter and reveal it through their pieces. In this way,
0: your interaction with the material is open to any possible associations
1: created by your listening mode. Forte magazine is only an audio existing as one solid track that you can shuffle through.
2: After our letter, you will find content that gives you the details and timing of each piece. So you are free to listen in the sequence you prefer.
0: Our aim is to include a variety of voices, locations and different states of recording that reveal the style of every topic as well as each contributor's character.
1: This issue contains the rough edges of a beginning.
0: Our dive into audio carries many difficulties
2: and possibilities that we are excited to navigate with you.
1: We would like to invite our listenership to submit letters by sound in the AIFF format to our email account or via YouSendIt for larger files.
2: Creative audio submissions for the 90-second final page are also welcome.
0: Selections will then be made from the most intriguing and issue-relevant submissions. Thank you. We can hear you. We can hear you. We can hear you. The editors.
1: Catherine. Georgia. Jackie.
0: Letter to the Editor. Written by Amy Owen and Elizabeth Hirsch. Read by Amy Owen.
1: Dear Forte, when asked to respond to a new publication of sound that by design has no visible, tangible parameters, and at the time of invitation did not yet fully exist, one wonders how to approach such an assignment. We must admit the task is both daunting and enchanting, but what is it about dealing with the unknown that creates such anxiety? Julia Christova's comments in The Anxiety of Interdisciplinarity, which address the reluctance of academics to collaborate with others outside of their fields, due to either pride or fear, provides an interesting jumping off point for our entry to the project. When we rely on the expertise of others in day-to-day life, on their fortes, so to speak, how do we begin to trust and open ourselves up to those brave souls who venture out beyond traditional boundaries of discipline? This begs the question, what then does interdisciplinarity mean to a publication whose very name is defined by distinct notions of expertise? In knowing the creative vision of those behind this bright new venture, We can guess it does not rely simply on traditional realms of knowledge, say, for instance, the obvious culprits such as music or sound art, but rather we anticipate a whole melange of content and a space that creates room for unabashed experimentation and the merging of disciplines, individuals, sounds, and information. Forte does not seek to deepen lines of disciplinary authority. It embraces and encourages their blurring. We see Forte as a magazine that exists outside of its own skin, Within this unfamiliar territory exists a space of freedom and for us the blissful unrestraint of responding to imagined content. We look forward to listening without expectation and to being continually delighted, inspired and challenged by the unknown possibilities of sound.
0: Image. We went deep, Queens, of how you pronounce the Queenland, our transport, not unusual, falls over dismissive signs, momentarily slightly cartoony severs, the way love is. Essay, part one, Thomas Jefferson's Society of Friends, the impact of epistolary companionships on notes on the state of Virginia and the core of discovery, written and read by Sarah Jechik. At the Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, hidden in the side stairwell of the building. Hi, so is just to the left. Is the...
3: Thomas Jefferson's Society of Friends The Impact of Epistolary Companionship on Notes on the State of Virginia and the Core of Discovery. In 1780, Thomas Jefferson received a copy of 22 queries compiled by the French secretary, Francois Marbois. The survey was distributed to representatives from each of the 13 colonies, and it aimed to collect information for France on the viability of each of the forming American states. It addressed a wide range of topics, covering politics, history, ethnography, and science. In short, France was very curious. But so indeed was Jefferson. He received a handwritten copy of Marbois's queries because of his particular suitability to thoughtfully tackle questions that dealt with such a variety of topics. His responses, after many revisions, became a unique document insofar as it thoroughly dissected the state from its present social and political systems down to its layers of natural history buried in ancient mounds. As Jefferson researched his responses in the summer and autumn of 1781, He recognized in this endeavor a particular opportunity to correspond with friends and colleagues about his answers. This correspondence was a way for Jefferson to test his arguments within a scientifically and politically rigorous group of individuals whom he respected and for whose company he often longed. Moreover, the revisions and support he received from the friends with whom he exchanged letters on the topic of the queries led him to revise and develop his responses into his only book, Notes on the State of Virginia. This unique environment of correspondence, which continued to influence Jefferson's manuscript and his thoughts on its usefulness throughout the 1780s, was a cultivated space of scientific discussion, which scholar Frank Shuffleton calls an invisible, informal, learned society of his own devising, one that answered his needs for both information and friendship. He revised the Society of Correspondence once again during his first term as president when he crafted his instructions for Meriwether Lewis, the captain of the Corps of Discovery in 1803. The planning of the expedition of Lewis and Clark, like the preparation of notes on the state of Virginia, allowed Jefferson to unite in one conversation the natural and political landscape of the United States. Over time, this conversation not only brought Jefferson closer to his friends and colleagues, but it also improved his capacity to approach scientific questions and to synthesize disparate elements into an ever more rich and unified narrative, a collection of processes he employed with great success when he arranged the training of the captain of the Corps of Discovery. Jefferson began to consider his responses to Marbois' queries soon after he received them in the autumn of 1780. In a letter to the French Vice-Consul, he wrote spiritedly, I am, at present, busily employed for Monsieur Marbois without his knowing it, and have to acknowledge to him the mysterious obligation for making me much better acquainted with my own country than I ever was before. Jefferson's work on the quarries was interrupted, however, by his duty as governor of Virginia to supervise the state's militia as events of the Revolutionary War began to reach into his home state. Due to a miscommunication with the state's militia, Virginia was underprepared to deal with British forces, and to many of Virginia's citizens, it looked as though the British moved unhindered across their country's landscape. Even Jefferson had to hurry home at the end of his governorship to gather his family and flee from Monticello. The British arrived on his heels. After a few months in exile, he returned to Monticello in July 1781, but was still greatly embarrassed by his encounter with the British. By early August, he was bedridden by a fall from his horse. And though Congress offered him a position to travel to France as peace commissioner, he was entirely miserable and doubted whether he was a good choice for a position of such importance. He admits in a letter dated September 16, I have taken my final leave of everything of that political nature, have retired to my farm, my family, and books, from which I think nothing will evermore separate me. Wounded by his recent political life, he developed a renewed interest in answering Marbois's queries which conveniently required a thorough examination of just those books and landscape to which Jefferson had lately confined himself. Jefferson completed a draft of responses for Marbois by that December, which he sent to him with a disclaimer. Even now you will find the answers very imperfect and not worth offering, but as a proof of my respect for your wishes. In this same letter, Jefferson mentioned his intention to send a copy of his responses to Charles Thompson for a perusal. Thompson was a friend and fellow member of the American Philosophical Society, a group founded by Benjamin Franklin that promoted scientific research and periodically published the papers presented to this society in their record transactions. This letter to Morbois, which announced his completion of a draft, also signified the beginning of Jefferson's correspondence with his friends for the purpose of improving his description of Virginia. To Thompson, he wrote, In framing answers to some queries which Monsieur Marbois sent me, it occurred to me that some of the subjects, which I had then occasion to take up, might, if more fully handled, be a proper tribute to the Philosophical Society. He asked Thompson for the favor of reviewing and revising his responses in order to teach him about the subject's scope and level of detail that were desired and expected by members of the American Philosophical Society. And in doing so, he revived an old discussion with his ancient friend, the scope of the philosophical society, according to Thompson, included all useful knowledge that pertained to the New World. This country opens to the philosophic view an extensive, rich, and unexplored field. It abounds in roots, plants, trees, and minerals, the virtues and uses of which we are yet strangers. He assured Jefferson that his answers to Marbois's queries, with Jefferson's extensive lists of flora and fauna, as well as his illustrative descriptions of Virginia's topography, would make an acceptable present. Encouraged by this description and by his friend's support of his endeavor, he sent copies of his drafts to more friends and colleagues, including his political acquaintances, James Madison and James Monroe, as well as men whose friendship he sought because of their scientific endeavors, such as Alexander von Humboldt and Francois-Jean Chasteleu. This ongoing correspondence became a way to enrich his writing and to turn over his ideas like fodder in a field, Yet this practice was also vital to the regeneration of his general health and happiness, especially after the death of his wife Martha in September 1782. To Chastele, a Frenchman who would compile his New World Encounters and Travels in North America in 1787, he confided, Your letter recalled to my memory that there were persons still living of much value to me. It found me a little emerging from that stupor of mind which had rendered me as dead to the world as she whose loss occasioned it. His correspondence on Notes on the State of Virginia revived him duly. His friendships with his scientific community and with his trusted political companions each needed to be tended.
0: Travel Pace. Radical Nostalgia, A Case of Organized Rememory, written and read by Shrestha Reid Premnath in Bangalore, India.
4: radical nostalgia a case of organized rememory a group of us gathered at a recently demolished room now swallowed up by the surrounding forest a year ago the forest department had claimed that the building stood on their land a violation more than 10 years ago we had spent entire nights there together listening to a mixtape over and over again a neatly inscribed title on the tape read good do copy no song titles nothing else Now that room had been destroyed, its memory a spectre had become synchronous with that tape. We had decided to come. It happened to be pouring. Find this place again and somehow channel it. Like mediums on a moonless night, we would materialize a moment that had passed. However, we had arrived with new friends who did not share our nostalgia at a different moment in our lives and at what was bound to be a different place. We even got lost at least once trying to find it. This audio track is a result, not really a recollection or narrative, but a result of that night. Memory of an existing place. Memory of a place that never existed. Place that forces its memories. Memory of a place destroyed. Place that dreams of other places. Place that is forgotten. Place that was forgotten by someone else, place that might have been. Place that you thought you found, place that became another place, memory of a place you have never been, place that transforms other places. Place that you lost and forgot about, place that has no memory, memory that has no other place, memory that is destroyed.
5: Yeah, yeah. So my Korean Oh, they have
3: yeah. kimchi Which is sort of like... A yeah, don't have nothing
2: What's kimchi Like Matthew? They
6: roll
5: For my birthday, Do just we left Oakland? Okay. I was doing pottery and from this, like, community college and I had, like, this uh, Japanese friend who was also doing pottery right with me and we came home, we had this sushi party
7: who oh, is the world of a sushi restaurant? Oh, oh. in America, which is where no. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't
6: yeah, matter, but then, like,
8: he he knew everything. He took over yes. the, best <laughs> <sport>. the <laughs> most impressive thing is he showed up with his own Japanese knife. <laughs> <you> yeah. <laughs> you have to <laughs> sing along We had another you No, Okay, no. <laughs> we all have to sing
4: along. It's all done
5: from we had a where she taught all of us to meet. Like, she to on the,
8: right
5: side. the
8: right side outside. Yeah. that was a hard one. Yeah, That's yeah.
7: Cool. yeah, yeah. like plastic wrap on yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: So, I told her I'd come to Korea with her. Once. You i, can I can go. go. So we i well, half an hour, she didn't say anything hmm. She's really happy, she's like yeah let's
6: say it Come back half an hour later She's
5: mm-hmm. like I can't think love of only two things you can eat in Korea Because <laughs> so yeah. yeah. like, yeah. I don't eat. to Yeah I can eat every Like every kimchi I think feel can't have yeah. 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 That's fish pass That's
3: us help him but don't you think like, I mean, have you ever been, have you always been a vegetarian?
5: Oh, yeah, but don't you think for so, the cultural experience, especially for like Italy? So, I've thought about that. Uh huh. Yeah, the reason I don't eat I find it weird. Hmm. It's more something personal, it's just different. I get it. Oh yeah. That is a good point. So I think it's not like that's not what we're talking about. That's a good point. Because especially in the US, I have no history that everything comes very sanitized. And people don't
3: even know what goes into like getting, no.
5: Like there is a school kid who's a professor, and he's a school and he's a school and he's like, ah, oh, he hears the cow. He's sexy. I have a feeling I can kill a string. So I have to write a little order on You can kill things. Oh, you have to do it first? Yeah, I
4: can't. Just say I can. Okay. do it. So if you can kill one animal, then you can eat all animals? No, no.
5: Bad animals.
4: Bad
8: animals.
5: So
7: if I do shrimp, I need shrimp. Are mm-hmm.
5: you going to shoot shrimp? you <laughs> <laughs> So you haven't had shrimp for a while? I'm getting more than Yeah, I love shrimp. I love shrimp. I love shrimp. Even now, <laughs> I haven't eaten I haven't eaten it. Eat the uh, super
0: Fiction. Bridget. Written and read by Christine
8: Rath Sally. It was junior year. I was the fastest girl on the cross-country team. Bridget ran beside me most races. It was in the end, in the last 200 meters, that I would beat her. This spot, this run beside me for two miles and lose me at the end spot, this spot had been previously occupied by my sister Jessica. Jessica. Jessica could run forever. I could just run faster. If the race went on eternally, she would win, but if the race had a finish line, I would beat her in the end. But Jessica went to college. Jessica went to college in New Hampshire, which was as far away and as cold as she could get. So when Jessica left, there were only people behind me and people in front of me, no one beside me, until Bridget. Six months into Jessica's absence, Bridget showed up. She ran beside me all year. I outran her in the last 200 meters every time. Bridget had big hair, big hair and a perm, and she wore bright pink lipstick, and she was skinny like a scarecrow. Bridget was like a girl in a poison video. Bridget hung out outside the McDonald's with her boyfriend, smoking and laughing with the other gearhead girls who were all gathered around their gearhead boys, who were all gathered around their cars, which were all gathered in the front parking lot at the McDonald's on the corner of Main and Center. The hoods were popped and the engines were running, heat coming off in the winter night. The boys were there with their girls and their cars, rubbing their hands together, blowing on them, putting them into the pockets of their Carhartt coats, chewing gum, snapping their smiles at each other, little men practicing for the real thing. Little men practicing for brutal work in the bitter cold. Engines and Carhartt jackets, rough hands and caterpillar boots. Bridget's gearhead guy was Lee. Lee was short and walked with his arms far away from his torso. He was short, but you wouldn't fuck with him. Lee had a curly head of blonde hair that would have screamed cute if he didn't stare you down when you looked at him wrong. Lee drove a mustard yellow Chevy Nova. He rebuilt the engine himself. He worked in the butcher shop at the Bylow on Blair and Mill across from the YMCA. He carried a lot of singles with him because he always cashed his checks at the register and they always had singles. He had a big wad of cash in his back pocket, but it never actually amounted to very much. When Bridget started jogging up next to me, it meant that we would pat each other on the back after runs, which meant that Lee would give us a ride home after practice, which meant that she would tell me that her mother was dead which meant she would tell me about her mother's boyfriend molesting her, which meant she would tell me about how wretched the preacher's family she lived with was, which meant that when Bridget was homeless, that when she was kicked out of that preacher's house up the street, I would ask my parents if she could come stay with us. It meant that when she came to stay with us, she would show my parents a letter from Pastor Miller that told Bridget she was on the way to hell. When she read that part, my mother was angry. She muttered something under her breath about Methodists we were Catholic. I was always a little scared of Bridget and her kind, but it was the first time that one of them was offering me a stick of gum instead of calling me a dyke or a slut or an uppity bitch. I really liked something about this group despite their meanness. I liked their sense of realness, their Springsteenesque existence, their embrace of rough conditions and work boots, of the necessities of life, simplicities. Marlboros and old English, McDonald's orange and grain alcohol, skull and beef jerky. And I was a Christian. I was taught that you give what you have to those who don't have it, and I thought this was what I was supposed to do. I was also sixteen, and it didn't occur to me that this was possibly ridiculously condescending, nor did it occur to me that anyone would take advantage of such a stupid person. Besides, I didn't want her to stay forever. I only wanted her to stay for a couple of weeks. At least until she could figure out what her father in Ohio was going to do about her homelessness. Bridget's father in Ohio took little interest in her. She called him Larry. Well, Larry didn't come through. After Bridget had stayed in Jessica's bed for two weeks, after Larry called to tell Bridget that the only thing he could do for her was move her to Youngstown or send her to shack up with his cousin Stu... After Bridget told us that Stu molested her too, we realized that she had nowhere left to go. So my parents came home one night with a cake and some legal documents. We had dinner, and they brought the cake out for dessert and told us they were Bridget's legal guardians. My little sister squealed with delight and jumped on Bridget's lap. My brother looked shocked, like another girl in the house was the last thing he needed. So that's how Bridget became my sister. How it is that she is no longer my sister is another story that involves a lot of manipulations. A drunk Bridget stumbling home for dinner. A hungover Bridget throwing up on my bed and falling asleep in hers. Many hangovers. A couple of stolen boyfriends. Many lies and a faked suicide attempt. Bridget ran next to me for two years, and for two years I would continue to win in the last 200 meters. But when those two years were over, it was Bridget who would beat me in the end. After she was gone, it was my mother who would slap the ribbon on me using both my names. Marie, Celeste, I don't know why I ever let you convince me to let that girl live with us. Then it was me who would drop the spatula from the dinner I was making to turn to her dumbstruck. It was me who would say, I only wanted her to stay for a couple of weeks. I said a couple of weeks. I never asked you to fucking adopt her. Then it was me who would leave the room and slam the door behind me, shattering one of the glass panes in the old French door. It was me who would throw all the remnants of Bridget into a trash bag and drag them out to the garage the next morning. It was me who would continue to shoulder the blame for the years that divided our family into bits that have yet to be rendered whole again. Essay What is the Relationship
0: of Voice and the Processes of Subject Formation? Written and read by Arlen Austin.
9: What is the relationship between the voice and processes of subject formation? This magazine has spent its short life trying to figure that out. But as we learned long ago, analysis is futile. Your favorite theory of the voice today may turn out to be just a fancy description of pop music tomorrow. Go back a few years and read the pains to high-tech sci-fi 21st century cyborg theory. People with mechanical limbs and auto-tuned voices. Cool. Don't worry. We're still going to tell you what we think. We always do. That's what we're all about. But first, here's a quick rundown of what some others thought. Meet Jacques Lacan. The man who thought the sardine can in the sea was looking at him adds the voice to Freud's list of partial objects. The object quality of these partial objects puts them enough out there on the side of what the subject sees or hears relative to their imagined former state of unity or fusion that they pain or haunt by their separation. They are depicted as transfinite, empty objects framing the endless set of empirical objects, and, in the case of the voice, all audio sensation. The voice as partial object is what frames the field of the audible by giving body to what constantly eludes this field, its authoritative power contingent on its removal. Varying intellectual traditions retroactively describe subjectivities as formed by inscription via removal. Of a commanding voice. Footnote 1. Hit in the Books. What follows is an offering of stock academic references intended to bolster the claim that ethical subjectivities are based on interiority. To facilitate understanding of ethical subject formation and the unalloyed self presence that it entails, the reader or listener is encouraged to slowly pronounce each sentence in their head while touching themselves. Socrates, can we get more foundational, had a pesky divine voice dwelling in the innermost regions of his consciousness. Quote, this voice began when I was a child. It is a voice, and whenever it speaks, it turns me away from something I am about to do, but it never encourages me to do anything. This retroactively fantasized angel voice of childhood, of course, serves in its proclivity for dissuasion as model for the Socratic method. There are countless authoritative ethical voices in Judeo-Christian tradition, from Moses as bearer of divine voice, to St. John the Baptist as crying voice, making way for the word that is Christ, to St. Paul's God-voice experience, Augustine hearing little boys in the garden, etc., etc., etc. Enlightenment philosophy takes up the call. Rousseau invokes the sacred voice of nature as guide and refers to conscience as a celestial voice. Kant has even the most ordinary among us, saved from ruin by an irrepressible voice of reason. Quote, or were the voice of reason not so distinct, so clearly audible to the commonest man, it would drive morality to ruin. Somewhere from critique of pur- pure reason, etc., etc., etc. This could easily be much longer. Meet Jacques Derrida. Many a tiresome scholar has tried to pin responsibility for his ethical subjectivity on a heard interior voice, generally representing a grand abstraction, like truth, nature, hope, etc. These internal voices supplement the more directly self-present voice which grants to the subject an experience of unparalleled immediacy unalloyed self-presence, and the basic narcissistic, autonomous-seeming enjoyment necessary for the formation of a self. Derrida The voice is heard, understood. That undoubtedly is what is called self-consciousness, closest to the self as the absolute effacement of the signifier, pure auto-affection which necessarily has the form of time which doesn't borrow from outside of itself in the world or in reality, any accessory signifier, any substance of expression foreign to its own spontaneity. Meet Judith Butler. To what extent the immediate self-present internal voice functions as a vehicle for external power, and whether the voice as interpolated power is distinguishable from the voice as a minimal primary condition of consciousness is a rather intricate question. Judith Butler, in a discussion of Althusser's notion of interpolation, gives a concise description of power as forming the voice of consciousness. In the absence of an explicit regulation, the subject emerges as one for whom power has become voice, and voice the regulatory instrument of the psyche. The speech acts of power, the declaration of guilt, the judgment of worthlessness, the verdicts of reality are typographically rendered as psychic instruments and institutions within a psychic landscape that depends on its metaphoricity for its plausibility. For Butler, the voice is the melancholic trace left by power after it has ceased direct domination and operates, paradoxically, through its withdrawal. Quote, social power vanishes, becoming the object lost, or social power makes vanish, affecting a mandatory set of losses. Thus it affects the melancholia that reproduces power as the psychic voice of judgment addressed to, turned upon, oneself, thus modeling reflexivity on subjection. Counterpoint. Is this not precisely the problem with both metaphor and chronic self-reflexivity? Is not the primary metaphor one establishing an isomorphic relationship between the subject's psychic topography and that of a dominant ideology? we make ourselves better and better capitalist subjects, the more varying forms of entertainment, critical discourses, ESPN announcers, we are able to assimilate and add to our personal pantheon of heard interior voices, mirroring in our psychic topography capitalism's ability to assimilate any tradition or critical discourse? And doesn't the chronic self-reflection from a third-person subject position inherent to much critical theory and postmodern self-chastisement? often function harmoniously with those regulatory instruments imposed by power. To think is to be screwed by, and essentially to, power.
0: Image Interior Green table, a beer, a cell phone, the keys, a laptop, a paper bag, a black book on the side, a cell full of CDs, music, data, files, extra filing of this person's life that no one knows anything about. The light is soft. It comes from an electric yellow bulb. What is this for? The pillow on the chair is similar to the table, the same green, and the matching makes things very scary. Is he going to appear? Is he going to appear? Just waiting for you, stranger.
9: Meet Levinas. In other traditions, the agent of interpolation is not identified as the voice of some dominant ideology, but with an experience of otherness. Most explicitly in Levinas, the voice is considered primarily as the voice of the other speaking through us and establishing our heteronomic ethical obligation. It is that reverting in which the eminently exterior, precisely in virtue of its eminent exteriority, this impossibility of being contained and consequently entering into a theme, infinite exception to essence, concerns me and circumscribes me, and orders me by my own voice. The commandment is stated through the mouth of him it commands. The infinitely in exterior becomes an interior voice, but a voice testifying to the fission of the interior secrecy, signaling to the other, sign of the very donation of the sign, crooked road, God writes straight with crooked lines. Meet Alain Badiou. Alain Badiou viciously berates this notion, decrying it as religious obfuscation, quote, a dog's dinner, and denouncing the entire Levinasian legacy as so much fashionable postmodern hogwash, replacing true collective political action with a vacuous ideology of otherness and human rights, both in service of global capitalism. For Badiou, difference is merely a given. In an existentialism meets Lacan vein, he imagines otherness located as much between the subject and their own self as between any two people. The real political project is one of traversing differences. The voice can enable this, but only insofar as it is both utterly singular and universalizable. Badya invokes the voice in his Saint Paul as that which severs the subject's ties to given authoritative dictates. Quote, Turning away from all authority other than that of the voice that personally summoned him to his becoming subject, Paul leaves for Arabia. Meet Althusser. In these varying accounts of the voice voice as agent of ideological interpolation, voice as revelation of our ethical obligation, and voice as bearer of singular universalizable truth there is still an interpolative encounter posited in which subject and interpolating agent be it the other ideology or truth, are distinguishable agents. Althusser blurs this distinction in ideology and ideological state apparatuses in referring to the subject as, quote, always already interpolated. He says, quote, the category of the subject is constitutive of all ideology, and, quote, ideology has the function, which defines it, of constituting concrete individuals as subjects. It is clear that for Althusser there is no uninterpolated subject who pre-exists the event of interpolation. Our subjectivities are prepared for us before birth.
0: Essay Limitations of Antisexism The revolutionaries acrobat in the rope of theory and tend to turn everything into politics. Written by C.C. Ducciu member of Void Network. Void Network was founded by a group of friends in the beginning of the 19th and since then has been collectively organizing open events in the city of Athens and all over Greece and Europe. Abandoned buildings, islands, houses, universities, squares, Bringing together artists, architects, engineers, political scientists, philosophers, travelers, workers, young and old thinkers, thus creating a circle of radical collective action, counting thousands of participators all around the world. Sissi Ducciu is an active member of Void Network, and the following text is a fragment of a long essay. Here, we have the opportunity to present a series of thoughts for consideration that involve her experience with the European anarchist scene on issues of sexism and propositions on forms of resistance that generate gender equality through equality in fights for society. Read by
5: Andrea Lopez it is impossible to simultaneously sustain basic sexist personal characteristics and trying to eliminate the inequality between the two sexists. In the same time, we want to be ourselves, to keep expressing our unique individuality amongst all the other people. Women have the right to love and be satisfied sexually, but if women are the only ones to emancipate themselves while the whole society doesn't change, these women would remain without an appropriate partner. If women are released from their bonds while the remaining society is imprisoned by its bonds, then their emancipation would not last. Liberation is not only for women. When we smash all barriers, liberation and emancipation will be the path to total freedom, liberation from obedience, the standard of morality, and the power of authority. The capitalist system is sexist. The capitalist system promotes the objective norm of beauty. Capitalism sells everything and destroys the planet with the industries which produce consumer goods. Capitalism sells water, sells food, sells art, sells philosophy, sells the revolts of the past, sells love, and sells sex. Resistance to the exploitation of the body, of the mind, of the desires, of dreams, is fertile when it happens. Resistance is not female or male, and participation in resistance comes from all sexes. That there is a particular majority of a sex doesn't give the characteristics of this sex to the resistance, as each sex is flexible and influenced by other sexes too. There is no patriarchal or matriarchal participation in resistance. There is only the participation in resistance. There are differences between the two sexes. The leveling of differences is disorienting since it disrespects the particularities. The anti-sexist way of thinking can easily specify the stereotypes of men and women stereotypes, but doesn't include the stereotypes of a transsexual Do the critique and the analysis of the anti-sexist theory include the stereotypes of the transsexuals, homosexuals, and asexual? Sexism is when a person discriminates against other people just because of their sexual identity. Is anti-sexism exclusive? The anti-sexist asks us to recognize sexism and condemn it as such collectively. But we cannot fight against sexism, as sexism is not a consistent and well-reasoned theory. We face dead ends and make vicious circles in order to even recognize sexism and apply anti-sexism. Anti-sexism is trapped in a certain kind of identity politics based on marginalization that makes continual reference to the arguments, demands, and debates that focus on self-identified, sex social economic significance groups marginalization doesn't end with the creation of marginalized groups identity politics issues the criteria that create the situation of victimization and the effects of it the slogan of the identity politics is quote the celebration of the difference unquote Yet it is a celebration of complacency to celebrate the illusion that identity is something fixed and everlasting. It is absurd to demand rights through the validation of victimization. I agree that there should be a, quote, celebration of difference, unquote, but from another route to another destination. Regardless of whether or not we stopped being sexist, capitalism would still not be threatened but if we were quitting our jobs and dropping out from our universities, then the capitalist system could collapse. Even if these actions did not cause it to collapse, we would have more time to dedicate to the procedures of the war against the state, more time to dedicate to our cultural revolution, more time to dedicate to the barricades, more time to dedicate to the cultivation of ourselves, to understand the phenomena and to have critical thought. Anarchist women and men need to see gender-based injustice as an expression of the dominant culture's ethos and not hyper-criticize their comrades with an anti-sexist logic. We need to deconstruct the dominant reality, the substructures of the civilization. We need to deny the morality of the present time and the meanings of the words As individuals, we need to move beyond understanding sexism as an individual issue or singularly as an institutional, social, cultural problem. Sexism is a social problem and an individual issue simultaneously. Society and the individual feed each other, having a reciprocal relationship. Are not single issue struggles a part of the whole? An analysis and political struggle based on some objective feature only creates groups that are categorized by these traits. Gender for sexism, race for racism, class for classism, nationality for nationalism. Identity politics only reinforces identities that are maintained, rationalized, validated by the sexist, the racist, the nationalist, the governors. Identity politics... Sexism, nationalism, classism, statism also maintain certain ideals, principles, and symbols of gender, nationality, class, and fight for a certain social order, even in terms of anarchy and a certain morality. The anti-sexists struggle for their rights and they ask and sometimes demand them from the society and their comrades. Identification and the association with a group are not sufficient. We think and act for a whole reversal of the dominant culture. Divided struggles based on identity cannot destroy the dominant reality from their singularity. The anti-sexists are essentialists. They ignore the complexity of reality and the perplexity of social relations and relations of power. Our behavior, what we say, and sometimes even what we think are uncertain and symptomatic. Our behavior, our words, our thoughts can be conditional on certain situations or bets about the future.
0: Image. Again in the same spot, at the corner of the image, a circle of flames and a group of people, with their hands open exposing trophies, Stolen portable machines, food, money, stones, and wooden sticks. Late at night, the fire circles the buildings of the same metropolis. The same buildings, window mirrors, skylights, facade of sky that cannot be seen. Waiting for something to happen. To the bank, to the super deli, to the superego. Some in the picture are certain. Capitalism is here to stay, and they stare at the fire from their houses, leaning their heads to see details of the mess from their balconies. Some say capitalism is an old story, and they keep on blowing cars and run on the streets shouting, We are the future. Interview Interview by Jeffrey Perkins in a taxi cab, all over New York. The existing material was recorded during the 1980s.
6: Um, so let's see. It's 8:42 uh, Sunday night, and um, I have a passenger, a tall blonde, um, attractive girl, um, and. Um, Let's see. Um, all right. So, what 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 do you do?
10: Uh, what is your thing? What do I do? Yes, what do you do? Um, I don't know. What does everyone do? I'm a prostitute. <laughs> what does anyone do? I'm a prostitute.
6: You're a prostitute? No. <laughs> huh? Is that true? Yes. I don't believe it. Uh, really? <laughs> That's astonishing. Um, okay. Um, are you? Uh, let's say um, are you happy with the work or
10: well it's a great experience i mean I, w- I don't really want to be in it and i'm looking for a way to get out of it oh uh-huh. but um, when you get into prostitution if you get into it at the correct level which is a level where you can make a lot of money and be safe and you know a class a quote classy or call girl level yes you know it's very rewarding you know you make over 100 grand a year sometimes it's very very rewarding and it's tax uh-huh. free yes so it's kind of hard to get out of the business, and I want out of the business. But right.
6: Once you achieve that kind of income, I'm sure it's difficult to uh, extract yourself from it. It is. And
10: I mean, actually, the last few months, I look, my mind has not stopped because I want out of the business. I just don't know how to get out.
6: Right. Uh, that's exactly my opinion about taxi driving, by the way.
10: Oh, I mean, it's the same thing with any job. I
6: mean, you get used to it. Right. And
10: you become, it's constant in your life. Right. Person, the two things I grew up with, without in life, was really a lack of like family affection, really, and centered love and a home. Uh-huh. And I grew up without like security, financial security. Uh-huh. And so those are the two things that are really important to me now. And I'm yeah. young, and I quickly made myself financially secure. Quote, right. You know, by prostituting and realizing there was always a means of money. I mean, it's not like I don't walk streets and stuff.
6: No, obviously you don't. You're, you're so uh, stunning, you have a, a completely... Uh,
10: I mean, I probably have more money in my bank account than most New Yorkers, you know? It's just
6: <coughs> a, Right.
10: I don't know, it's very awkward, to be honest with you. It's a great lesson.
6: What did you say? It's a great lesson.
10: A lesson in, in what sense? In life.
6: In life? You mean just bringing home the bacon, so to speak?
10: Oh, yeah, well, I'm 20 years old, and I see. I'm gonna be 21 next month. Uh huh. I've been out on my own since I was 15. Since you were
6: 15? When you say you were on your own, you mean you left home?
10: Yeah.
6: What did you do? What
10: did
6: I do? What did you do when you left home?
10: I moved in with him. Yes. And I finished high school. Uh huh. Are you in New York or are you from somewhere else? No, I'm from the Midwest. I see. A lot of Midwestern girls become prostitutes. I don't understand it.
6: You say a lot of Midwestern girls are prostitutes? Yeah, I think so.
10: <laughs> well, I guess they look so, like, well put together or something. I don't understand. Uh, well, I did, I did pick up uh, a very
6: attractive woman one night took her to a club up here. I forget what it is. It's up here somewhere off of 8th Avenue. And she told me that she was uh, a prostitute also. And she said that every girl that she knew was in one way or another in the sex business.
10: Well, I think the sex business in Manhattan, I mean, it's gonna be the uh, next street lamp on the uh, left. Yeah. I'll be very honest with you. Yeah. I, um, I all, Not only do I work in the sex industry, but I also have money investments in the, sex in, the adult industry. All right. and that's where I make a part of my living as well. Uh-huh. And you know, New York is all about sex, Jewish money, and um, entertainment. And, you know, the sexual industry is sort of the thriving industry here in Manhattan. Indeed. And it's just the way their life goes. I think every, well, when you really think about everyone's really a prostitute, I mean, when I say prostitute in America, everyone thinks sex, but everyone's really a prostitute. I mean, you'll hear this so commonly, but, you know, when people are doing jobs that they don't really care to do, and things they don't really want to do in life, what are they doing? They're selling themselves. Right.
6: They're either prostitutes or some kind of slave.
10: Yeah. Yeah.
6: And also, apparently...
10: Uh, I don't feel like I'm in slavery because I put myself here and I, I control myself. If I had a pimp or oh, I was some down-the-street girl or something, that'd be different. I feel mm-hmm. like I was... I would feel like I was a, a slave, but I don't. I do know that I think prostitution, as far as on the sexual level, is addicting. Addicting? Addictive.
6: Why do you say that?
10: Well, not only do you get so used to the money, but it's like... It's opened myself up... Sexually, as a person, and um, how has it it changed you as a
6: person? It hasn't.
10: It hasn't changed me as a. It has changed me as a person completely. I've grown, but I think what I said it it did. It opened me up sexually as a person, most of all, and um, made me realize how less important sexual orientation is in life, and sexuality, and it showed me the importance that people put on it.
6: When you say it's less important, uh, what do you mean by that?
10: Well, everyone really puts a lot of importance on gender and sexuality. Right. And I find that it's very less important. And I think that there's only, like, maybe a certain group of people in this world, like, kind of like, I would hate to say a higher form, kind of an enlightened thinker. Yes. And I think that type of enlightened thinker looks beyond gender and looks beyond sexuality and looks into the person. You
6: know. So what? What I've is that if lot. if gender becomes less important as as far as sexuality is concerned? I think it all becomes. What important. is the, what is the issue? What is the issue?
10: Right. Love. Okay. I think people have a lack of it. I think if people have a hard time loving. It, I think people have a hard time being loved. Right. When did you realize that? I guess it wasn't yesterday, but. Every morning I wake up, I think I realize it more strongly.
6: Uh huh. Well, uh, I probably um, agree with you. I agree with that. And I also agree that, um, you know, I see that there, the gender issue is uh, is something of these times.
10: Oh, yeah, it's definitely yeah. of these times. I hope that we can evolve out of it and go on. but. I wonder if, like in Manhattan, maybe it's always been an issue. Gender's always been a
6: well. I think more so these days. Oh
10: yeah, more so these days. But I'm not speaking of just gender. I'm speaking of sexuality and gender in in coalition with with sexuality. You know?
6: Well, I don't. I don't know the. uh,
10: I mean, take it this way, yes, I've met men that are completely heterosexual and yet they they come across one man in their whole life and they fall in love with that one man right, and that's the only man they've ever had a relationship with, but does that make them gay? No, and it wasn't a fact of gender, it was a fact of love that they fell in love with that person, you know right and well, I think that that there's a whole problem there.
6: And do, do you think that, that sex and love are uh, um, are intertwined? Or, or in other words, one can't have sex one Sex is a it?
10: way to um, show love. Right. But sex and making love is two different things. Sex is like, I think sex is like what my brother does, my twin brother, I think that's what he does to get off. Like
6: You have a to, twin brother?
10: Yeah, like to pull out his masculinity, like to get his rocks off, that's right. sex. Right, to get off, right. Yeah, but then the art of making love and you know, the whole fact of, like, sharing a body and sharing a soul and sharing every inch of you from head to toe? That's like an artistic way to, like,
6: Oh, uh, yeah, it. that's in the realm of ecstasy, I would say.
10: Yeah.
6: In the extreme. I go for that a lot.
2: I see. <laughs> <laughs> How much do
6: I owe you? It's five
10: fifty.
6: dollars You're inspiring me. Um,
10: yeah, well, a lot of people say I'm inspired.
0: Review. Memory Reviewings Moira Davis on Louise Bourgeois Written and read by Cara Benedetto Image This cover letter has all its curves well varnished Non-toxic liquid holds the dust away Well-made is not the best description for just a sympathetic smile This cover letter Long cloth holds, folds, unfolds by a lucid voice. When a young girl steps on yards of grass, nature is under sexual economy. And who is able to count?
11: At 6.23 p.m. on September 14th, 2009, 30 minutes before I was to sit down at the Dia in Chelsea, I sent this text message to a man who said he had a stalker that wasn't me. Sometime, I'll blindfold you and lead you to a dark room where you will smell the end of my day. To which he then responded, shot in the dark. This is a review on Moira Davies' presentation on Louise Bourgeois. Perfection, purity, controlled form, geometry, syncopated, pat and dry, ironic distance. Her voice reminded me of mine when I'd sleepwalk, and my father would wake me. He would find me speaking to Carrots, my brother's guinea pig, who had a small glass cage in a corner of our kitchen. Later, my father told me that I had become very angry with him for interrupting. I only remember waking to a faint sound, a voice that reminded me of something, and a weary confusion things were not what they seemed. It's not until now that I realized that it wasn't my father's voice, but my own voice, unrecognizable, faded but certain that I was able to speak guinea pig, that startled my slowly becoming conscious state. Moira spoke in angles while she craned a long neck to gaze up and over the podium, and the soft tone rendered a curve as she projected the sound to a wanting crowd. As she crooned Images of control flashed in my mind. Cutters, anorexics, all like bourgeois, dealt an ongoing loss. The absolute unacceptance, almost chivalrous in its tenacity. Kathy Bates was seated next to me and occasionally groomed herself. Her miserable character stretched all over the back of my chair. She throttled it with a bent and flabby arm. Doug and I exchange looks. Together, we do something like listen. The father is the son. I want to be a woman child. The daughter, I refuse to be the mother. It was a small hunted animal. Pain is the ransom of formalism. Business I am. I fade in and out of Moira's voice as I try to focus on the images, text and painting, then notebook, then screen again, screen on her face, glasses narrow a sound, and then a warm white shadow graces itself next to me, on top of me. Kathy is chewing her fingers furiously. Then Surrealism, Marguerite de Bacon and the Id, repeating the same story. Wolfing down the information, I begin to hoard thoughts for my friends other artists in the room. Memory for Douglas, miniatures for Valerie, and an angel for Virginia. Phantoms. Uncomfortable ambiguities. This phrase stops my tracking. I know what's coming. This is the part of a talk, the talk that the personal, parental, sexual, political choices are mentioned. To haunt the artist. Artist hauntings are ghost views into your own Q&A. The insane killer who escaped in Seattle yesterday said his murder was an issue of four seconds. I begin to hate Kathy. Not only the character, but the woman in flesh. Most women never understand disorder, Moira continues. Men know chaos, and if you know it, you can manage it but you must be shrewd she mentions Baudelaire I imagine Jane Austen surrounded my family at a loud and full carving table as she plays butcher mother and writes her books using images of bourgeois and family Moira speaks about Mildred Pierce a movie I haven't seen she says bourgeois represents her best the maternal is important here but I can't remember why." Then very clearly Moira states within the pretext of a memory, I am here to make, I am here to learn, I am not here to be an expert on Louise Bourgeois. Insomnia drawings. Drawings glow big and behind Moira a circus of yellow light and the dark scrawls legible in piles watch the back of her head and hear our every word. I always consider Dura to write dialogue through stage sets in the body. And I think Bourgeois' text functions this way inside of her drawings. When Moira speaks of Dura, Bourgeois, and the secrecy of the artist and the unknowable, in my notes I wonder, why this angle, Moira? Suddenly, the French philosopher I blew all summer sits heavy in my throat, tagging my insides with one of his boring, nuanced jokes about a woman's trickery. The feminist in the room gets wet. Pink is acceptance of the self. I love this. I quietly begin to relive my Barbie doll existence back when I knew my clit well and forgot the pressures of real beauty. Moira began this talk with a conversation she had with a friend that started, Dude, Louise Bourgeois. Kathy breathes heavily watching my pink flashbacks. I write in my notes, this bitch is trying to read my writing. Pascal is scrawled beneath. Then my conclusions. How to hold in your imagination. She's a badass. Bookish M is all about coincidence and the unconscious. Strong memories. Kathy begins to tie the back of her mauve blouse, roped like a pig to a hen, and my teeth chatter. It's question time. His on where a word sits visually, hers on the importance of is she or isn't she. Another him in the room shrugs, his wife whimpering. I think of my therapist with questions and how she doesn't. Kathy starts to suck again. Now I begin to worry about how and why I should perhaps this woman next to me actually in is bourgeois, or is she too, lays claim to reviewing my voice. My pre-conscious guinea pig chatter before my father assists lovingly, and I push myself to remember human language, or at least my own eyelids. In the end's rooming view, I'm guessing text messaging is my voice of mediation. For the insomniacal. They move over and around screens of the men, like I like. Like the woman sucking, I can feel my teeth in their blackberries, my nails in their faces glowing. The sucking and the memories and the hazed out voice, choked in angles, rides me out in the back row, and I tend to think, This is stinkest. Okay. Essay
0: Recipe Written and read by Tyler Coburn at the former Jello Factory, now Paintball Gaming Center in Leroy, New York.
7: After thousands of years of inquiry, perfection takes form. Strip a cow or pig of bones, tissue, and skin, pressure spray. Soak in hot water, industrial dry. Wash in acid for five days, boil to distill, flash heat to sterilize. Pipe the residue through evaporators, separate the good from the bad, grind the good into granulated powder, send the good to Leroy, New York. Makes gelatin. Mix one part gelatin with four part sugar, add natural extracts from fruits and herbs, or artificial colors and flavors for maximal economy. Seal and glassine, carton, ship, glazed with newfangled jargon, robust marketing, doe-eyed spokesgirls, four-color adverts, recipe books, affordable costs, homemaker rhetoric, the darling of a million dining rooms, delicate, delightful, dainty, a bargain World War I price of 25 cents for two packages, how to live high on very little, a depression era affordable, 25 cents for three packages, A common-sense domestic science time-saver, a smart World War II meal that doesn't require ration coupons, the clay by which we become creative, born of a genius with the vision to see the distant horizons of a later day and a new order of living. Or as Philip Morris CEO Frank Resnick remarked following the 1985 acquisition of General Foods, Jell-O is food technology. It was known as the Ganson Settlement until city businessmen bought it up, along with most of the land in western New York extending up to Lake Ontario, then as Leroy after one of its new proprietors, yet its most appropriate name may have been Bologna, which it held for less than a year prior to the 1812 purchase. This ancient Roman goddess of war, or waster of cities, once oversaw the temples populating English gardens, the concealed memorials of war and would go on to be the patron saint of Samuel Delaney's fictional midwestern metropolis, channeling her destructive energies into the city's very. In this timeless city, in this spaceless preserve, any slippage can occur. Sometimes it seems as if these walls on pivots are controlled by subterranean machines, so that, after one passes, they might suddenly swing to face another. A metaphoric realm of self-consuming history, where our protagonist wears an optic chain of prisms, mirrors, and lenses, refracting any attempt we might make to interpret or identify. The suspension bridge that will stitch Bologna to the world takes current shape as Route 19, and the five-mile walk along its shoulder from Exit 47 to Downtown Leroy offers up the shattered rearview mirrors, hood ornaments, glass and tire tread to make a present-day chain and ensure protection against the warning bells and sirens. Standing in the midst of lawns and shrubs and shade trees, with red tile roofs and broad skylights, and filled to the brim with crystal gelatin, delicate, white, translucent, and pure and clean as falling snow. Such would be the Leroy Jella factory described by the early 20th century promotional materials, published by the Genesee Pure Food Company. Their packages were made and filled by women dressed in nurse-like whites, the employees were all American, and none of their ingredients were touched by hands throughout the process of preparation. If the excessive rhetoric of purity allayed the fears of a nation still reeling from the jungle, Upton Sinclair's 1906 exposé of Chicago's meatpacking industry, as academic Rosemary Dorothy Bria has proposed, then it also solidifies jealous status as mass industrial immaculate conception, a product of shining technological innovation that all but eradicates its foul origins paving the way for a later identity as a kosher product, and interpolating its granules with spiritual, mechanistic lore. Yet the factory bleeds. In the early years, it informed the community of the weekly flavor by the reds, yellows, and blues seeping into the creek long after the company's departure in 1964 to a consolidated General Foods plant in Dover, Delaware. After even its life as Chesapeake Packaging Co. carton and plastic manufacturer, the repainted walls still leached red, and the plant's upper floor followed suit by transforming it into a paintball arena. Tens of thousands of gelatin balls filled with brightly wit paint have since battered the factory in rituals of aggression neo-expressionism Neuralistic abandon, broken its windows, killed one person, near asphyxiated most visitors, and drawn blood from its walls and ceilings. in the use of unspoiled promise. If asked on a slow Friday night, paintball manager Chuck will descend into its labyrinthine basement, fast accumulating the cat five cables and new lighting fixtures. For the factory's imminent rebirth as tech production and records management hub. And set rocking the pendulum of a small mid century clock. By the midnight stroke, this ghost will rise to stalk its hallways, fiddle its switches, and play the building. It begins as a stray meteorite and ends as an amoebic mass, consuming a nurse, a doctor, a mechanic, the janitor in Mr. Andrews' grocery store, the colonial theater projectionist, the audience. The local diner. Yet, like its general foods brand sibling, the blob yields to the power of mid-century kitchen technocracy, recoiling at the hum and chill of the refrigerator. The opening credits of the 1958 film also play a domesticating role, as Mark Backrack and Hal David's light and bouncy ditty stands in for Ralph Carmichael's sinister instrumental, and an insatiable commie monster is shown to creep and leap and glide. Slide, as any cartoon character should. I don't trust the way it moves, Gareth tells his co worker on the office after finding his stapler encased in a mold of jello. I don't know, admits a cast member of You Can't Do That on Television, triggering a bucket of lime jello brand gelatin mixed with oatmeal and baby shampoo to fall on her head. Potentially frightening encounter with alterity and with the limits of understanding is neutralized through comedic affect, glossing suspicions about foul origins and paranormal properties with a wiggle, with a jiggle, with a spokesman voted by one Ford consumer poll as the third most popular figure in existence after God and Cronkite. To cite Cosby as the longest-running brand spokesperson in the history of the world, it's not simply to add another one-of-a-kind jellas 100 plus year success story but to suggest the ongoing necessity of masking its unsavory bits behind the wide grin of fun <laughs> to venture to leroy with a belly fortified for the cream cheeses olives spinaches canned fruits pimiento marshmallows and nuts that made earlier generations culinarily at the least, utter aliens, is to be sorely disappointed. For as if by systematic eradication, the sweet and savory gravestones of foregone tastes that once mingled along the margins of appetizer, entree, and dessert are nowhere to be found in the town, save at supermarket tops, and only then in sugar-free form. Eighty-four percent of a product slim to none. Narrative placeholders must suffice. History is told by the eighty-four-year-old tour guide at the Jello Gallery of the Victorian cow's foot jellies, the eighteen forty-five Peter Cooper patent, the struggles and sales of the incompossible routes Jello takes through the world, as carpentry glue, as gel caplet, as photographic emulsion, as mint, as paintball, as Jello brand gelatin. How are those peaches just suspended there in defiance of the law of gravity? Portnoy wonders. For such translucent, primary-hued magic necessitates a concomitant suspension of disbelief, of trust through material envelopment, of icy spark and piquancy of flavor and beauty of form. The theorist Laura Shapiro notes stabilizes the axes of culinary and sociocultural molding. Herein lies the jello perfection, in becoming completely decharacterized from its original source, as general foods promotes. This first. And this greatest 20th century foodstuff also becomes technology's first perfectly manipulable creative medium. Art manifest through total
0: control. Image How her leg turns and touches his leg. A detail. White clean pair of socks. Sneakers bought a day before the shooting. Her knee... Is thin, almost a microscopic blue vein stands to remind this knee is of a human being's tenderness and softness. Probably he is a swimmer. His leg is saved and it is a summer day. Picnic in the park, a thin line of grass under the gesture. She doesn't wear shoes. She just pushes a bit the front part of her toes. Food. Hangover. Lover. Written and read by Douglas Bodewhite.
12: The Dear John letter is a devastating thing to receive, especially when it's perceived in the pursuit of an affair. This form usually reserved for the sweetest of love affairs, words filled with fantasy and excitement, promises of days spent together, giddy with love, instead sits mortifying ye heavy, like a brick in your inbox and in your stomach. How does one cope with the pain of a letter ending an affair, the love of returning to their past, yet filled with words of hope, I love yous, I think about you constantlys, I want your body on mines, it can't work right nows, I would love nothing more than to be with yous. I suggest a little juicing. A perfect combination of sweet, luscious flavors can do just the trick, can pick you up, can allow you to focus on the sunny, while still fortifying you for the hard times. So to start with, we're going to take some nice honeydew melon. It's fleshy, juicy, beautiful, green, it's a great fruit to commemorate a summer affair. Make sure you wash the fruit off a little bit, even though sometimes the best things of the affair are the is the the dirt and the grit It's nice make sure you get a nice sharp knife, so you don't slice your hands off, and you just want a quarter the honeydew, and cut the seeds out. Excellent. And then I usually just like to chop those quarters in thirds, just so I don't completely overdo the juicer. You don't want to make it work too hard. you're putting it together, it can really let you think about your lost love. Might have done something wrong. This is a new juicer, so maybe I forgot one of the parts. Hmm. Oh, it seems to be in there okay. I just had to push down a little harder. That doesn't seem to be working. Perhaps it's a good idea to uh to cut the rind off of the melon first. Hmm. No, it's okay. Let's just try it again. problems Please excuse me. I'm not quite sure as doesn't want to work now okay yep they're aligned properly. Be a problem. Let's try it again. Well, apparently, I have to use the reset button. Hopefully, in the process of doing this, I won't chop off my fingers. All these frustrations are really good though, they allow you to, to work out work out some of the problems and sadness from the from the ended affair. Okay we're gonna press that button to restart it. And let's try this again. I'm actually going to try to cut off the rind of the melon as well. I thought the first time I'd u- use this uh, juicer I didn't do that, but perhaps I did. It's a little frustrating because you want these things to work kind of as uh, as much as you work for them. Which doesn't really make any sense, I know, but... What's the point of having a heavy-duty juicer if it's not gonna be heavy-duty for you? Alright, so... <coughs> Let's try this with our... Melon with the rinds removed, and here we go,
9: Let's just kick it up the high,
12: uh, really satisfying. Right now, I've got about 15 ounces of the honeydew. That's about half of a small to medium-sized melon, and I think it's probably going to be good for our base. We can always go back later on and double check. I always recommend to uh, to try a little before you before you move on, just to make sure the fruit's not bad. It's delicious.
6: Mm.
12: <coughs> Alright, looks great. It's also a really beautiful color of kind of seafoam green mixed with a little lime. It's really fantastic. So now we're going to move on to the nectarines. Some nice white nectarines, solid, firm, I like this tight body. And we're gonna mix it with some yellow peaches, a little fuzzier, because orangey brown stubble. The soft curly hair on his ass. And these we're just gonna wanna cut in quarters as well. Get the pit out of there. Uh, And the nectarines and the peaches will add a kind of nice brightness to the melon. Kind of mellow, lush melon, then a little sharper peach and nectarine. I'm going to suggest maybe one of each for now just to see how it works out. Now for the peaches. Oh man! I wish you could smell this. It's amazing. <laughs> the juices looks like a little uh, rainbow sherbet, the red of the nectarine skin, the nice pink, the yellow the orange of the peaches, beautiful uh kind of soft orange, and I think I might add another peach the The melon I was using wasn't as fragrant as it, so I like it to be. So, uh, these peaches smell fantastic, so, and just, uh, yeah, throw a little more of that in there. And really the great thing about this is you can, really, you could just experiment all day. It looks fantastic. forming in uh, beautiful layers, like a miniature Mark Rothko. And again, I'm going to take this out and kind of sample it to see where we're at as far as flavor. so we're almost there. We've got two more steps. I think, uh... I'm gonna add a little... pineapple. Now this is where you could go in a little different direction if you wanted to. For a a less sweet juice, I'd suggest a little beet. Uh, but I, I really need some sweetness today. Heart's aching a bit. So we're gonna go with some pineapple. Nice and sharp. Delicious. Well, cutting a fresh pineapple is really a little tricky. Feels uh quite exotic. And I've actually never ever done it before. So let's see how it goes. So I'm just slicing it and um well, I guess what I'm going to do is take a small paring knife and cut around the core. Push that out. Excellent. Perfect. Now I'm not quite sure what to do about this green stuff around the edge. I guess maybe just do the same thing. Now I'm sure one could wiki this just to uh find out for sure. Oops. Ouch. The best way to cut a fresh pineapple. This is one of those foods that, unfortunately, I don't eat often, well, like I said, never. <coughs> I mean, fresh whole pineapple, uh, because I'm a lazy eater, and I don't like to have more than a few steps when I'm eating something. Chicken wings, I'm not so into. Bagels, bagels and cream cheese I can handle, but sometimes people use bagels, cream cheese, and jam. Which, I mean, that's just one step too far for me. can't really get behind that. Um, Alright, so we've got two kind of nice thick pineapple rings. Probably about three quarters of an inch thick each. And then I'm going to toss these in and see how they work. I'm not paying too much attention to removing the, those kind of hard bits in a pineapple because I'm assuming that the juicer will get that out of the way with the uh, pulping mechanism. Oh, right, that's fantastic. Alright, might need to add one more pineapple ring, I'm not quite sure. Let's try this. Pineapple was a mistake, actually, but we can fix it. It's either not the freshest pineapple, or I just don't know what I'm doing and I didn't cut out the sweetest part. But what we're going to do to fix that is add some ginger. Just get some ginger root. Slice, you know, maybe, start with maybe two kind of half-inch chunks of it. Throw them in there. Actually, might need a more, little more like a three-inch chunk because the juicer doesn't produce so much ginger. Ginger juice, I should say. Hmm. Now that smells good, might be fixing it up a little bit. Well, that's good. The ginger really helps mix all the other flavors together. The pineapple, the peach could be coming out a little more. The melon base. Mm, I feel better already. So that's our failed fair smoothie recipe some fresh ripe honeydew, some nice firm white nectarines, and sweet yellow peaches, a couple pineapple ring chunks, and uh, a few inches of ginger root. (coughs) Delicious. (sighs) makes me think of summer, and the ginger helps make me feel healthy for the fall. And you never know, you never know what will happen with the failed affair. Perhaps it'll come back in winter time. The juicing seems to help.
0: Horoscope, an introduction to astrological science. Written by Jennifer Pietschko Read by Lev Kalman
13: Horoscopes It can be difficult to accept the idea that we can't always write our own fate, so we must discover and acknowledge the other influences that determine our options and outcomes, so we can then interpret our true possibilities. Understanding one's place in the spiritual labyrinth can help us to map out our way to the future we want, instead of regarding our conditions to be ruled by chance. Astrology is one way to decipher the map. The twelve signs of the zodiac are the twelve stations for the sun moving across the celestial sphere. Taking into account your personal history against the occurrences of the universe, you can understand the paths of spiritual forces that express your reality. Your horoscope is your set of directions to guide you through the celestial map of the spiritual universe. Aries. Aries signs are in charge, always chasing after thrills and adventure. Her dynamic energy is unstoppable. They are natural leaders, enthusiastic and independent. Fire signs radiate energy and are resilient against anything or anyone that tries to discourage them. They have a distinctly masculine energy, and are drawn to someone who can offer a more feminine energy for balance. Aries are direct and candid to a fault, which often stems from their unrelentingly naive nature. The first sign of the spring equinox and the beginning of the astrological new year, Aries are a breath of fresh air a powerful new beginning to the zodiac cycle, especially in the upcoming year of change and upheaval. A wealth of rubies awaits every Aries who channels the energy of fire. Taurus A Taurus uses his cool, collected attitude to keep others at a distance. He is determined to control his surroundings He naturally craves security and stability and gravitates towards those just like him. Tauruses are balanced, conservative characters by nature, giving the Taurus a taste for the finer things. He may seem distant at first, but ultimately is a very patient and reliable person and has a soft spot for Earth and nature. Full of mystery a Taurus has another side that is usually well hidden from others. A Taurus is represented by emeralds because he can easily become green with envy, jealousy, and possessiveness, but also work as an antidote for every poison. Gemini. One never meets a Gemini one only meets one side of every Gemini. The twins of the Zodiac, they are not necessarily two-faced, but merely very distinctively multifaceted. While a Gemini can appear mysterious or detached, even contradictory, they are merely misunderstood and often discussed and dissected by others. Always on the move, Geminis naturally crave new experiences and variety, making the upcoming year one of tough choices, but ultimate clarity. They are great communicators, and love to talk more than any other sign and writing and foreign languages come easy to them. Like the agate, a stone of many colors and facets, a Gemini is a natural chameleon. Cancer. Cancers are born under the dark and mysterious moon, always hiding and shifting. Above all, he is a creature of love and romance, and cancer's the most alluring of all the signs. Keenly intuitive, open to psychic influences, and a hopeless romantic. The Cancer can easily fall into a fantasy world. They crave intimacy, closeness, and an outlet for their moodiness, uncompromising in their need for quiet and solitude. A Cancer will have a fluid upcoming year, a river of renewal. The Translucent Moonstone will always shine to guide a Cancer back to his nocturnal nature. Leo The Lion is the dominant sign in the Zodiac. Radiant leaders, soulful and adventurous, the only thing she should fear is her own pride. A Leo's character evolves throughout stages over a lifetime. The Sphinx is wise beyond their years and is a great leader and teacher, which is exhibited through their intense commitment to others. The Lion is the king of the jungle with an ego, but very protective of those they love, and the Lion Cub is young, scared of the new and terrified of being alone. Above all, the Leo craves love, adventure, a radiant ruby suits the Leo's radiant, noble nature. Virgo A Virgo is a rare orchid, needing special attention and optimal conditions. However, once those conditions are met, a Virgo will blossom to be the most creative, successful, and motivated of all the zodiac signs. Shy, yet sharp, the quietly confident sapphire shines for Virgos. Just like Virgos need to be nurtured, he understands how important it is to nurture those they care about, and are often the first to give attention, advice, and companionship. Empathetic, they understand others because of their deep and reflective nature, and remain optimistic never becoming cynical over broken hearts or disappointments. Libra A Libra is always looking for the perfect love, and his attainment or disappointment drives their character and choices in her life. While they may seem like happy-go-lucky people, Libras are attracted to drama, and are often deeply affected by their personal relationships. Libras are feelers, not thinkers. However, when they do find that perfect love, they are in paradise. They are also talented at fulfilling a role, making it easy for them to achieve career success and a socially fulfilling new year. The fiery opal suits the dramatic Libra. Scorpio. A Scorpio lives for passion and power, and intensity and drama is visible in his eyes. However, he is the most secretive of all the zodiac signs. They are intuitive old souls and seem to have the right advice for everyone else in their lives, but often have trouble taking their own advice and are unable to forgive or forget. It may be an uncertain future for him, but Scorpios always prevail. Calm in appearance, but turbulent in emotion, the influence of the Scorpion is always nearby which is the darkest level of a Scorpio's personality, manipulative and insensitive. However, the opportunistic Scorpio can also choose to channel the Eagle, invincible, turning every situation into an opportunity. Once in tune with his sign, the full potential of the Scorpio is the phoenix resurrected, detached and most powerful, Sagittarius. Sagittarius is the most vibrant, expressive sign in the zodiac. Her free spirit drives her to follow careers and lifestyles that explore media, travel and new culture. Opportunistic and independent, she is capable of taming her wild tendencies once in tune with her sign. Since the centaur is one half of her zodiac, she strives for balance between the human and animal halves of her personality, sometimes causing her to be honest and forthright to a fault. The healing properties of the topaz encourage harmony in her influences. However, a Sagittarius believes that anything and everything is possible, and is ultimately unpredictable and spontaneous. Capricorn A Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, the planet of structure and responsibility, and Capricorns are ruled by success and status. However, he can follow one of two paths in the Capricorn mythology. The Mountain Goat, who always moves upward and strives for the best. And the Garden Goat, who needs a push to get started, fearing an uphill battle. However, both are patient and persistent enough to reach their high goals. The Capricorn is cautious and conservative, but willing to risk anything for love and, ultimately, security. The Garnet will bring a Capricorn luck but his natural discipline will bring a Capricorn success in the future. Aquarius The Aquarius is the undisputed new ruling sign of the zodiac and leads the way for all the other signs. She likes to have something to look forward to, and often suffers from insomnia because she can't quiet her mind, often finding the need to retreat from others to gain perspective and collect her thoughts. She is most creative, innovative, and makes friends and allies everywhere. An Aquarius earns the loyalty and trust of everyone they meet by their ability to remain impartial, even though they hold strong political and social beliefs. They are often philanthropic leaders and should be rewarded with amethysts. Her leadership abilities will be tested. Pisces The Pisces, symbolized by a fish with two heads, one looking upward and one looking downwards, easily confuses those who try to understand him. Very alluring, talented, but lacking clarity, the Pisces lives in a fantasy world. Ruled by powerful emotions and creative impulses, the Pisces can just as easily become a millionaire as a tortured artist. His philosophical vision carries him through much emotional chaos. His sensitivity always rules. Spiritual moonstones offer the Pisces strength as he prepares for another mercurial year.
0: Image. You are my friend, my only friend. 21st century didn't teach us how to do it and redo it, but to do it and do it. There is no such thing like redo, redo, Redo. <laughs> Ninety seconds, made by Joseph Strau My
2: light. For weeks now, we have planned, planned to look at some of the few remaining light. Planned that midday to search for a bit of light. The staircase is so dark, but you can see a bit of light behind the window. The light has become too weak and too lazy to even go through the glass into our house. When we meet in the evening I mostly talk about what color the little light which remained for us actually has. We say there is light but not for us and I believe this is the most positive sentence possible actually. I used to say that if the sky has a color sometimes it is yellow like nicotine but that is wrong for the metaphor. Maybe because others compare this no more magic-of-the-moment weather with the yellowing papers and fading texts. But rather than that, our sky is a wet fur, wet, which tries to keep us warm and on the cold days the fur comes down very low and the empty trees look like supporting pillars for it when it is getting too heavy and wet. With our light all sense of time disappears, fulfilling utopian desires just twisted and unkind. The only break we have in these endless periods, in these timeless periods I must say, is hoping for the next soccer game. In cold rainy stadiums or at home we watch the stadium lighting being broken by the misty wet frozen air, empty it like telling us to be finally loud and angry again with all the power we had when without narrow-minded restrictions and silly offers for fans. God save him and we will kill the rest. The old poplar is swinging is getting wet from brushing the fur It is never really raining but the dark shiny stones on the street never get dry Looking at my new friend, his hand
0: Forte All pieces recorded by the readers except Sarah Jejek, recorded by Lev Kalman Andrea Lopez recorded by Catherine Jasky Christine Ruff Sally and Georgia Sagri, recorded by Justin Gluck. Joseph Strauss, My Light, produced by Georgia Sagri, images by Georgia Sagri, audio editing by Lev Kalman, copyright Forte, 2009.